Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Decoding AQ. With me today, I have Catherine Ward. She's a non-executive director, a board advisor, an executive coach. She's been a global CHRO, and she's currently the MD of People Perception Limited, And Catherine describes herself as in the portfolio stage of her career, which is blending that non-executive director roles, consultancy and coaching. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you. So beginning your career at KPMG, then time at Aviva, the BBC, Sotheby's, and yeah, a three-time chief of people officer at executive board level and three interesting organizations, which we might dive into a little bit. The British Council, 12,000 employees, InterServe PLC, one of the largest employers in the UK with 80,000 people globally, and BMI, a healthcare company, in fact, the largest private healthcare company with 70 hospitals. But my first question, before we get into that, for you, Catherine, is to take you a little bit back in time. And was there a specific moment or an event that led you from a degree in biology to choose a master's in psychology? Well, there was actually. So um, I, when I was going through school, um, I enjoyed both the arts and the sciences. I was very torn at the point of deciding what I should study at university. And everybody said, well, it made sense if I could do either to do the sciences. So I, I did. And then I was working, I always did lots of different different holiday jobs. So I did a particular job in a research lab and I loved it. I loved the people and I loved the environment the first year. And then the second year I went back and it was as though they had been frozen in time. They're doing exactly the same experiments, doing exactly the same desk work as they had been doing. And they would carry on doing that for three years in order to get valid results. And I thought, this is not for me. Now, of course, as that turned out, a lot of jobs are like that anyway. <laughs> You're on a cycle that repeats every, every year without that much change to it. But that was the first time I'd come across that. And I thought, this is not for me. I need to be more out in the world. And I need something that's got some more dynamism to it, more, more change to it. So that was the point at which I thought I really have to go and think about what I want to do for a career rather than just float through and become scientists as people kind of expected me to. So actually it was the holiday job experience then. I was doing lots and lots of different things, uh, working in shops and pubs and hotels and uh, all the, you know, working in a factory, I worked in a factory as well. And I decided that I wanted to go and work in HR and I wanted to go and work, you know, in, in an organisation that was about people. I think this was probably very ill-informed at the time, <laughs> but that's where I started and that's how the change happened. And then I tested that assumption at different points in my career. Um, and that was what led to the move into consultancy um, away from operational HR and into consultancy was one of those points of reflection and thinking I needed to change course somewhat. And, and from there on, I was in and out of different HR consultancy jobs and finally ended up as chief people officer. It's interesting, isn't it, Catherine, where sometimes we have an absolute career uh, thought mapped out for us, maybe a vision from our parents handed down that we then embark on. And we may or may not realize at some point in the future, there may be a disconnect between that vision and what actually lights our fire. Or we discover it as we go along, you know, uh, experiences being open, an element of naivety to try it out. 
to mm-hmm. test it out and then evolve and say like that don't like that good mm-hmm. at that not good at that learn more and we we move through life in terms of each of those kind of phases that you went through was there some particular pieces like that event of some work experience that led you into hmm I don't want the same experience each year just repeated three years in a row and uh, as scientists are, but that has shaped a lot of your career that maybe first for learning mm. or is there a few bits that you can maybe link looking backwards that's really impacted your choices? Mm. Well, it, I think the move into KPMG and into consultancy was, was a, a critical one. I think what I discovered was that I actually have some innate ability to disentangle chaos and find a path through it. And I, I think it was that realisation, and initially I thought that was just something people did, and the realisation that actually, no, that was just something in the way that I was wired that was quite fortunate. Um, and I think that built most of the rest of my career, really. It was sort of saying, well, I can go into places and, and help manage change. And actually, if you look, certainly as my career progressed, it became more and more about helping organisations to manage change than it was about core HR and and HR processes. And in helping people manage change, it was very much also about developing organisations to give fulfilment to all the people that were working in it. And that's where my particular interest, of course, in, in EDI developed. But I think when you look at certainly from... You know, the, 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 the middle third of my career, if you like, the first third was building skills. The middle third was about really managing change. And, and now I'm into, as you said, the portfolio career. It was about that ability that I discovered in myself to go, well, OK, so this all looks very complicated, but there will be a way that we can break it down and work our way through it. Was there a particular methodology or set of principles that you brought in, as you said, a unique ability to derive simplicity and direction from chaos and to help uh, these complex things called humans play well together to objectives. Was there particular principles, methodologies that helped you in those phases of transformation and change? I th- I think there were, there were different tools that I used at different times and different methodologies that I used. One I particularly like and go back to quite often is Bert Litwin. Um, I've used that quite a lot, you know, it breaks down from really strategic and vision and values right through into the nuts and bolts of of an organisation. I think the reason I like that is because, again, one of the advantages of the first third of my career being about learning skills and the middle third about change was that I was always able to join up the, the strategy with what you needed to do to make it happen. So that particular model, which takes you through that process, was obviously quite attractive to me. One of the challenges that I think many leaders and people face is the balance between those methods and principles and the need for hyper-personalization, you know, where we might have something, ah, when we're trying to do it at scale, you know, 80,000 people, 12,000 people, often we follow the principles, we do these things, and it may not really resonate or really um engage on a person by person basis and i think that is one of the biggest challenges that i've seen in the interviews i've had with many people around this subject is how do you bring everyone along in on an individual basis when you've got limited resources you know limited time or tools or pieces 
were there things that you've experienced that were maybe different mm -hmm. to that or ways that you perhaps overcame some of those challenges around making sure no one was left behind in those paces of, of change? Well, you're right. I think it's the biggest challenge in change. And I think you have to build the time in for it. In fact, I would say it was probably the most time consuming part of it. Um, and I think when I look at some of the programs I implemented, you know, large proportion of the time was spent on that early design and buy-in stage. And the actual rollout then runs more quickly once you have got people engaged. It's also very difficult to believe that you will get every single person in an organization cheering on a change program because in in, in general they are quite you know, they, they require quite difficult shifts for individuals. And for that is that is really harder for some people than for others. Um, so I think all you can do as, a, as somebody who's leading a change program is to look at all the strata through your organization, all your stakeholders, think about how you're going to communicate with them and how you're going to get soundings from each of them. And that's meaningful soundings both ways. And I think when we come to look at how things are in the current state of change in way of working generally and we look to the future I think that is going to become more and more and more crucial I think the ability to really tune into what people are thinking and feeling as well as into the sort of tools and processes that are going to help you change is going to be critical to, to to actually leading people through this phase that we're currently in this transition that we're currently in from you know very established ways of working that have served as well for a very long time to to these very different and and much more sort of complex ways of working it so is, I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's, that's a really essential part of any change process is, is really working, working out from the outset how you're going to communicate and, and genuinely engage with people that are implement, uh, uh, affected by it. It's a, it is a two-sided coin, isn't it? Fearful and exciting <laughs> at the same time, depending on maybe your mindset, what you've experienced coming into it, what your context and situation is, and the level of change. If it's a little bit of change uh, versus a radical big one that looks different, sounds different, you know, appears alien, and we have this immune system that comes and says, doesn't sound like before, doesn't look like before, so I'll give it a bash on the head. Whereas other people will say, brilliant doesn't sound what it did before doesn't look like what it did before let's let's bring that in so i think that opportunity you know you've described it as both exhilarating and daunting this opportunity that we sit in of this this reimagination at the moment and where do you see it, that you know the possibilities and what are some of the you know maybe risks that we might be needing to be aware of as we're redefining maybe what work should be what it could be so on the exhilarating side you know i think we've worked in the same way for so long decades you know people commuted into work they sat at their desk for eight nine hours a day commuted home again and that was the pattern of work for so so long and it was quite interesting because i was doing a sort out at home and i found a book brochure um, dated 2012 about the future of work and the need for more flexibility. I thought, wait, it took us a long time to get from those ideas from about 10 years ago to, you know, where we are now. So the pandemic accelerated that in a way we could never have expected. I mean, people were already starting to work in, in, in different ways, but this massive switch almost overnight 
Um, I think it's probably un- unprecedented. So I don't think anything that radical has ever happened across the global workforce before. But it has led us into this world that we were sort of starting to think about, but probably would never have reached this point um, uh, ha- had something so so significant happened. And I think it is exciting. I, I think I think the opportunity to really redefine how we work, where we work, the, the way organisations actually configure themselves, how people think about themselves and what it is that they contribute to work is immense. I think the biggest risk for us is that we don't understand, is that at this point we're still testing, we're still experimenting. And I think the opportunities are there, but the risk is that we get fearful and we roll back into what we know and we roll back into the status quo as it existed before. And I think that's something we need to be very careful of not sort of slipping back into. So I think the, the way through all of that, as I said, you know, is, is based on managing change for a very long time, is, is really very close communication, really close dialogue with, with everybody to understand what it is that they're thinking, what it is that they're wanting, and then managing in a very organic way through this experiment to the other side and a way of working that's going to work for everybody without rolling back just to something that feels very comfortable and, and pre-pandemic status quo. I think it's interesting, and I'd love your views on this, Catherine, in that we had an emergence of wealth creation and business development through management. And we had management structures to get productivity, efficiency, elements of innovation all around this concept of management. How do we manage things? When we're in a world that is less known, when we are experimenting all the time, when we are testing things out, I think the emergence now of the need to shift from management to coaching to coach people through, to have the um, ability, the setting, the environment to deal with things that are unknown and don't go right, (laughs) and that we can support ourselves through that, I think is a really interesting trend where we've seen coaching happen in other industries. Uh, Sports, as an example, is one where we see peak performance massively encouraged by the use of having coaches and multiple types of coaches. But we haven't seen that maybe to the same scale or to the same distribution uh, across the workforce. As you mentioned in your blending of your career, consultancy and coaching, are you seeing a move towards the opportunity of coaching to help people navigate through those levels of uncertainty to redefine that that work vision, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I think with it, I think the role of the manager in all of this, the role of the leader becomes really critical. And I think that they need to skill in the areas of coaching their um, their workforces. So what I what I did see was that um, one organized well, one organization I was in, we ran a huge survey, um, and there was a really close correlation between the people who had felt that the the, the transition to uh, remote working or hybrid working had gone really well and was working with them really positively and the way in which they felt that their line manager had supported them. I mean, really close correlation. So it said that, well, what was it that those managers therefore were doing that made this fundamental difference, that this was a good experience for the people in their team? And it was the, the fundamentals of really communicating with people and listening to what those individuals wanted 
and being able to be flexible about making arrangements that suited people. So they were able to somehow let go of some of that real rigid formality that had existed before. And a key part of that was actually shifting to a coaching style, one that said, I'm not really interested in how you get your work done. I'm just interested in what comes out of the other end of that effort. Um, and that, uh, that confidence that by coaching somebody in the right way, that would actually happen. And the people who expressed unhappiness with the, the shift were those where line managers were fearful and micromanaging. And I guess that was where individuals had, had substituted having somebody sitting near them all day long to putting in, in processes that felt very much like very procedural micromanaging. So that sort of shift to um, manager as coach, I think, is critical to navigating this new way of working. Um, and you do, do see that. I do see that organisations are investing in supporting line managers to develop those kind of skills as to how to manage people when they're not sitting right under their uh, under their, their sideline um, all day. It, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Where, you know, in sports, they talk about having court sense. You know where people are, what they're mm -hmm. doing, where the ball or the puck or whatever is currently, where it might go. And you can sense that movement and flow of information, of energy. When we then right, we're now going to play this all in your own separate rooms. <laughs> and the level of trust, level of autonomy, the level of, oh, I'm going to throw this to you, catch. I might have a complete disconnect because I can't see what kind of day you're having or what's going on in your life because you're not, as you said, in the room, in the space. So I'm interested in your view of of flexibility. I've heard and seen a lot of articles talk about how important flexibility is. And of course, that shows up in lots of sort of straightforward, simple ways, which might be the hours we may work. So it might be more convenient to, depending on our life stage, whether we have young children or different things that are happening, to have flexibility about the time I show up. But what are the other areas that you've been seeing in the organizations or maybe some of the companies that you're advising? consider flexibility in different ways could you share a few of those be, be really interesting so i came across this phrase recently which i think sums it up for me which is the paradox of flexibility and uh so that's which i'm seeing a lot which is on the one hand people want flexibility and actually unless an organization is able to respond to that thoughtfully and with empathy it's going to be a real problem for, for them actually as an employer and on the other hand, people want the, um, you know, the, the, the social involvement of actual face-to-face -face contact. So it's how do you get that right without being, you know, without dictating, <laughs> you know, the, the days on which people must must be be present. But the, but this this paradox of flexibility, I see as as really probably where we're we're struggling the most in this transition. So we've come out of, you know, the total remote working, we've tried, we're working and experimenting with, with hybrid working. And where we're now is like, well, how do we get the benefits actually being face-to-face, -face, which we're kind of craving because we like actually being able to be collaborative, to, to work things creatively with colleagues, to chat with colleagues and know them as people and have normal human relationships with our coworkers. 
And on the other hand, actually, I quite like this flexibility, which enables me to you know, fit it around the lifestyle that I want. And again, I think that comes back to really um, opening that out and saying, well, this is what you're saying to us. You want both of these things. How can we make that actually work? How can we actually make that happen in a way that it enables you to retain sufficient flexibility? And on the other hand, that fulfills this other need that people are saying they, they have, which is to, to work in the same space as other people, because that's what really sparks creativity, what really sparks you know, collaborative outputs, um, and which just means that you have a social element to your work, which was missing during the pandemic. So, uh, so that I think is is the conundrum. And what what I see happen there is is being very conscious about making events where people can get together, investing the time, investing the resources into making those effective and good use of people's time. And as I said, this this real dialogue about how are we going to balance this? How is this going to work for this this extended team of people here in a way that those two things can be met? And of course, there might be some people listening and thinking, well, remote doesn't work for my team, for my industry, you know, whether they might be sat and uh, they work in the NHS or uh, they are firefighters or they are a front line where it needs to be in a physical location as they can't work remotely and they feel this barrier. Oh, I can't do some of these things because we're wedded to the way in which things have always been done. And I really want to inspire and challenge everyone to think, how can we use this opportunity to reimagine some of those things? I know, for example, in healthcare, the leap forward that, yes, there is currently a challenge that if you have somebody who's unwell, had an accident, oh, I'll do that as telemedicine to put the stitches in or to deal with it, might be currently a little far-fetched, but we can do a lot of telemedicine remotely using the collaboration tools of Zoom that for many knowledge workers or office workers has become the norm, uh, that there could be other areas of doing those things. And technology will soon give us all the choice to either be physically there or maybe there just in our cognitive ability with then dumb terminals. You know, we have computer dumb terminals with the intelligence at a distance. Maybe that will be an opportunity for other workers uh, that will be able to deploy a technology effect and us control it. Whether that's in 10 years time or 100 years time, this opportunity we have right now is to reimagine what work looks like, what it is for you, and give the permission, as you mentioned, to experiment. And I want to touch on Another part that um, you mentioned in some of our initial prep work around this flexibility and the organization being able to equally be flexible and respond to that and the idea of becoming porous. Mm -hmm. And I'd love you to reflect and uh, share a little bit on your thoughts of what organizational structures may be in the future and what could we be rethinking in terms of what does an organizational structure being porous mean and what opportunities does that open up? Right, so there's a, a lot in there. So we've been focusing really on the, the here and now, to be honest, and the sort of point of transition we've been in. And now we can take it as a leap into the into the future and, and place of imagination. And I think for people whose jobs currently 
mean that they have to be present, which is still a lot, a lot of jobs, let's face it, in transportation, healthcare and so on. I think I think there is needs to be a real empathy. And I, I'm very conscious that sometimes we talk about um, you know, flexible working, hybrid working, and we kind of forget that for many jobs that's not the case. But I do think, I do think that we ought to apply imagination to how those jobs cannot can also benefit from flexibility. And I agree with you that I think technology is going to provide lots of opportunity. I think lots of opportunity in terms of just different ways of doing things um, and really imagining what those could be by blending sort of technology output outcomes with things that really still have to be done personally. But also, I think, in terms of enabling those people to design their working life in a way that suits their lifestyle as well. And I think that technology really should enable us to do much more sophisticated sort of time planning that will enable everybody really to be able to build, you know, a pathway that suits their life at that particular life stage. And people's life stages change as they go as they go through adulthood. And you know, what somebody wants when they're young, and what somebody wants when they bring up a family, and what somebody wants when their children have left home are going to be very different things. And I think that at the very least, for people who have to still go into a physical workplace, there ought to be a way that says, well, what is the pattern of work that would really work for you? And to be able to deliver that in a much more fluid and flexible way than has been possible before, but which the tools we now have really should enable us to design. And then you build onto that to say, and are there ways in which some of the some of those tasks can be taken away and done remotely and uh, and and be done by by those people controlling robots or controlling you know terminals uh, so that the, the their their particular skills as a, as a um, uh, are are used only when they really need to be face to face with somebody and the rest of the time as you say their their knowledge is used to control processes um, remotely so I, I think that's that's a real leap that that needs needs to be thought through and imagination applied to to really imagine what could be possible there and so the poorest organization i think that then flows into into all of that we are more, we have seen it a bit on the fringes you know the, the idea that people have skills and they can come in as consultants um as interim workers as, and so on but i think where this can go to is saying well the, the core organization actually has this porous community around it of people who can flow in and out of this organization, again, according to what sort of suits um, you know, the, the levels of work that they want to do and the amount of time that they want to commit to that organization. But rather than just coming in, doing a project and going again, they're actually part of this much wider organization. And they might be, might be in that wider community of two or three organizations, but are nevertheless feeling that they're part of communities and they're actually, you know, as, as committed to you know, the purpose, um, values and mission of those organisations as though they were permanent employees, but their relationship, their time relationship is a, is a much more fluid and flexible one. And linked to that, I want to touch on a, on a point around these different phases we go through mm-hmm. life. And as you mentioned, you know, we might have different uh, desires, different needs and different parts in our life cycle. And where this concept of retirement and that, okay, we've got this uh, great resignation and people are rethinking where they want to work, how they want to work. Oh, I'm 
not connected to this purpose. I want to work for a more meaningful company that's aligned with me or it hasn't given me the flexibility. And so we've flipped to then the demands of the employee and then how do we attract them? And we have this challenge, oh, we've got to retain people, we've got to retain people because it's so expensive and onboarding so hard to now thinking, well, if it was porous, if it was all fluid and it was all now moving and we had lots of balances of consultants and uh, maybe even the concept of retirement shifts where you know we thought, all right, reach a certain age, now you retire, you have your pension and do something else. I know you've got some thoughts on that of the opportunities maybe for that entire societal shift from uh, you don't have to, but you could choose to. And where would the value be and how could organizations be open to more of that kind of uh, thinking? So can uh, I just share some of your thoughts? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, um, Linda Grattan wrote about the 100 year life. Um, at, you know, when she was projecting to say life expectancy would be 100 years. So, so therefore, we have to rethink about how we, we spend our time because you can't be retired for, for 40 years of that. Um, and I don't know that, that, that people really have the same expectations, you know, around uh, when they finish you know, the full time work as they did before. I think a lot of people sort of do, do things, carry on doing things um, for organisations that are paid. But what becomes increasingly difficult, I think, is that once you've left a full time job, it's quite difficult to get necessarily the sort of work that you were doing before if you were working at senior level um, or you were using specialist skills before. Um, and it seems that organisations have been quite slow to be able to shift to say, actually, there's this huge pool of, of capable resource out there, uh, which seems to be growing with the great resignation as people are saying, look, I really don't want to work in this particular very full time, rigid corporate um, time, time bounded way anymore. And it seems that there's a bit of a lag to saying, actually, we, we could still use these skills at the right level at the level in which these people were working before by looking at much more flexible ways of use of using capability rather than necessarily designing a whole five day a week job around them and then I, th I think you know I think there'll be quite a lot of people that will be very open to being able to you know come in and work on meaningful and uh, work that was commensurate with the skills levels that they've got if they knew that they could come in and, and work on things for either a few days a week or just for a few months of the year, but as part of this, this sort of porous organisation model where these skills are around within a community and can come in and, and go out in a way that suits the organisation, but also works well for what, you know, whatever life plans uh, people have got as well. So I think that there's an enormous pool of talent uh, sitting there, which is not being well deployed at the moment because these sort of mechanisms don't exist to easily bring people in and through into supporting organisations with particular types of more complex or senior work um, that fitted with the skill set that they had at the point at which they left full-time work. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's in part the systems and process, and in other part, it's our old biases and perceptions. Mm -hmm. It's you know, biases and perceptions, and I suspect. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting because I, I read in preparation for our conversation when you mentioned about this, I read up a few different uh, pieces in history of, 
you know, where did retirement come from and the concept of retirement and what were the certain ages that we had? And there was something that stood out to me and it was a Canadian physician um, that in his address at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, he said, and I'm going to just uh, sh share a bit of this with you. He expressed his conviction that a man's best work was done before he was 40 years old. And by the age of 60, he should retire. He called the ages between 25 and 40, the 15 golden years of plenty. Workers began, uh, workers between ages 40 and 60 were tolerated because they were merely uncreative. But after 60, the average worker was useless and should be put out to pasture. And this was in 1905. And I, I thought, you know, whilst we might smile and think, oh, how ridiculous, you know, I'm, I'm 43, I feel I haven't even started yet, you know, and uh, my coach is 76. And he's in the most prolific, most creative zone of his life. And this notion and perception about particular ages, meaning capability, physically or cognitively, is definitely shifting. But there's still a massive bias that, um, um, you know, old relationship with the 1905 thinking, you know, to a certain Gosh, extent. extraordinary, isn't it, to, yeah. to think that those, those ideas. I think, I think that's part of the problem. That's part of it. Probably not as extreme as that, but possibly part of the problem. I think the other problem is that they're really, you, you very rarely see a senior level job advertised as anything other than, than full time which very rarely do you see it even as a job share, hardly ever. And you certainly never see it as a, you know, open to you know, different ways in which this could be delivered. So there's also something about that idea that senior level jobs can only ever be done if the person is, you know, absolutely full time and a half. So I think that's, again, something that needs to shift as well. Well, can't you just break pieces off this and turn them into sort of part-time roles? And, it, and it's, it's, it's not, that's not, not part of design at the moment. No. And then the other thing I, I, you know, curious about this whole thing, I began asking around because there, there were quite a few things in the press about the government trying to encourage over 55s back to work. But it turns out that the, the type of jobs that they're trying to encourage 55s back to are, are really about, about the very unskilled or, or junior end of jobs. So um, I found that in itself rather disappointing as though, well, you can come back to work as long as you're not really doing anything, you know, at, at a level that might have been where you were before you um, decided to leave as part of the Great Resignation. So I think there's, there's quite a lot of, I think it's a really interesting area for, for more thought and, again, more creativity. And it's quite curious when there's so much thought going on about diversity and inclusion that this area seems to be a little bit out of sync um, and a little bit rigid compared to some of the discussions that are going on around um, other aspects of DNI. I think it's the conversion opportunity, isn't it? The, the mm. conversion of where organisations can reimagine job roles from a mm. big list that has to be a commitment at this level of time to fractional, fractional tasks and fractional people that can come in and contribute to the overall, as you mentioned before, outcome and result mm. and sort of not try and dictate the how in the middle, you know, and allow the how to be the beautiful experiment as long as the outcome is what we're, we're looking at doing. As we shift into the next couple of pieces before we close out, Catherine, there's 
obviously a big challenge of these different skills and how our skills evolve, uh, evolve whether it's management and leadership shifting to coaching or it's a level of awareness of selves or context. Could you give us a, a little bit of insight from your own decades of experience and where you're operating at such a high level with different organizations? What are the sorts of essential skills and things people perhaps need to be aware of and thinking of to be able to harness this exciting opportunity we've got ahead of us? Mm. I think... I think for individuals, for individuals, I think this is a time where people need to be very aware of of their skills. So if if we're everything we've been talking about, this is a shift, isn't it, from um, jobs to skills, which I know is one of the themes that, that you're particularly uh, interested in. And I think that, that that really is lies at some at the crux of a lot of this is that it's, people need to start thinking of themselves as as having, you know, capabilities, talents, contributions to make and rather than you know fulfilling a, a job as such and, and what are those contributions talents and skills what are they and, and being very aware of of what they are but equally being very aware of the need to keep them developing and and enhancing and, and one of the other things I was reading recently because my own career has moved around quite a lot I found this really quite interesting was that actually one of the most developmental things you can do is to move companies and move sectors and move jobs and you, this suddenly puts you onto a real stretch trajectory as you're having to learn a lot very quickly. But of course, if you're wanting to hold on to the people in your organisation, you have to kind of create that internally um, and take risks. And some of the things I've seen in my career where people have taken risks and given people a big, big step change promotion or moved them into a completely different part of the organisation uh, or given them, you know, major projects to run larger than they had been running before, is that most of the time people with the right support around them, of course, and assuming that their proper thoughts had gone into how that support was going to work, succeed. And, and I think that that insight, that growth really comes when people start shifting around jobs, whether that's externally or internally, is, is, is really interesting for individuals as well. So being very aware of what it is you have to contribute, but also being confident to make those big leaps that will give you a whole new skill set and give you a whole new um, appreciation and insight into 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 the work that you do um, are things to be really encouraged it's interesting isn't it i remember years ago this sort of debate between broad and deep you know do you mm -hmm. go very broad in whether it's industry or or level of skills or awareness or do you go super deep and you go you know so uh, focus so intelligent so highly expert in one singular thing and I think it comes back to another word you used earlier is the paradox you know that the paradox we're living in right now is yes and it's both it's playing in the dance and the motion of that poetry between broad and deep and broad and deep through throughout as opposed to ah I spend all my time being educated in schools in universities then I go and deploy it climb the ladder and done to actually know we go constantly into those opportunities of, of learning and that willingness to find new things we never even knew we enjoyed or we liked, you know? And so two final pieces. One is a surprise question for you at the end, but before we do that, it is speaking in theory or speaking in methods or 
abstract forms is great for conversation. But if people want some real, okay, I'm facing this issue. I've got some challenges of dealing with change. I've got, you know, things are uh, feeling a little bit out of control. We had the pandemic come along. We've come back. We've settled with that and we've got burnout. We've got exhaustion. We've got some challenges ahead. What are some of the practical tips you could give some people or teams to help them deal with the world we find ourselves in right now, Catherine? Well, I think we want to be really practical, really pragmatic. So I, this is something I often see is that people are often running multiple threads of activity, you know, and trying to solve this problem, that problem, the other problem, the other problem, and, and actually not getting them finished and or not prioritizing them. I see so many times. And I, I would what I would suggest is say, stop, stop, and just take stock of what it, what it is you've got on the go. Um, and as a team, just sit down and catalogue it all. I, I favor really low tech, just putting it all up on a brown paper around the wall and then deciding what are the things you're going to prioritize and get done and give yourself a deadline and push the other things back to one side and just regain control, just have this sense of regaining control of things that are really going to make a difference to your team's success or the organization's success or your personal success. It works at all three levels. But uh, that technique um, of, of just pausing, listing it all off, prioritizing, ditching the stuff that doesn't need to be done right now, um, focusing on getting a few things really delivered well will make everybody in that team feel so much better <laughs> than, than running after multiple threads. So that 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 would be be one. Um, and the other I have to say is to is for people to look after themselves. I think we sh I hope we kind of took some messages out of the pandemic. Um, and now we find ourselves in another wave of crisis. But it's the basics. It's giving yourself enough time. It's looking after yourself physically. It's looking after your relationships, both the work relationships and your relationships outside work. It's getting out into the fresh air and into nature. So I think all of those things that we knew were important in the pandemic, let's not forget them as we kind of dealing with this next wave of difficulties um, over the coming year. I think they're super helpful, you know, that sense of valuing our networks to go and have conversations and maybe the best leaders and organizations are not mm -hmm. only making the space for that but encouraging that to happen both as you mentioned at work and out of work when's the last time you know you spent time with relationships that matter and i loved your idea of pause reflect catalog prioritize and gain control i think that is a great opportunity when we find ourselves of these you know, headless chickens, these busy fools that are just running around with so much that we feel an overwhelm of tasks to just take that moment and contextualize now what, what is going on right now. Pause, reflect, catalog, prioritize and gain control. I think that is so valuable, Catherine. And my last question is related to curiosity mm. and this sense of doing things that maybe scare us, doing things that are different, doing things that we can learn from. Because when we're experimenting and we're in test phase, we might be doing things that we don't know the outcome of. 
And it's when was the last time you did something for the first time? And what was it, Catherine? Oh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> oh, that's what I just uh, <laughs> I think it was because um, my 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 big hobby is dancing. And so it was going, it was quite scary, if I'm absolutely honest. It was going for a lesson with somebody who was extremely uh, well known in the field. And I was pretty terrified. And um, I was given a whole new approach to what I was doing. And um, yeah, it was tough. And afterwards, I thought, oh, my God, I've had a breakthrough. I love that. I love that. You know, the the opportunity to take something that you may love, you may do, but do it in a different way. In so a different way. You... I was right out. Of, I put myself right out of my comfort zone, I have to say, completely out of my comfort zone. And uh, it wasn't easy. And um, something came as a bit of a shock. But afterwards, it was like I have had a breakthrough that I could not have had if I had not put myself into that space. Do you know, Catherine, I've got all of these visions going through my mind at the moment. So is it break dancing and hip hop? Is it ballroom? Is it salsa? Catherine, tell me what type of dance Latin, Latin dancing. Latin. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. I love it. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Time just goes so quick uh, on all of our conversations, but it's been a real gift to uh, share, to chew through some ideas together, to help people reimagine, to rethink and choose what kind of future of work are they creating right now? It's already here. What do we want to distribute next? What do we want to experiment oh. in and what we want to distribute? People want to reach out to you, Catherine, because they've connected with perhaps certain things that you've said. They want to uh, understand how your non-exec work works or maybe your consultancy or coaching. What's the best way to reach out to you, Catherine? Uh, probably on, well, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and then I just dropped me an email. It's probably um, to catherine.ward.ppl at gmail.com. Or through LinkedIn, obviously. Obviously, send me a message through LinkedIn. We'll add them to the show notes. And uh, I'll say goodbye and a deep gratitude. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQ Me assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams, and organizations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast directory, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.